0: And please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Lord willing, this will be uh, the uh, fifth to last message in Ecclesiastes. After this, four more. Uh, That's the plan going through the month of September, but... Um, hope you found it as rich as I have, um, just every phrase holds so much truth. Um, the realistic book that we have before us has um, showed us that our God understands what it's like to live as us, created men and women in this world, and yet He is constantly pointing us to a hope that is there, and you see that all throughout the book. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12, I've entitled this message Carpe Diem. We've got one Latin teacher in our congregation who I trust appreciates that title. Let's just see if I translate it right. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12, please follow along as I read. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Carpe diem, that idea is found in the middle of this passage. Seize the day. Grab onto the day. It's actually a term of, be found in horticulture, pluck up the day. The day's ripe, it's ready, grab hold of it. I think of that term when I think of this passage. There's a death sandwich in this passage. The reality of death at the beginning, the reality of death at the end, and in the middle, what do we do? Throw our hands up, sit around, wait with some dour disposition. No, we seize the day. We do things that God has called us to do. We enjoy the things that he's given us we view the fact that life is given to us we view it as a a privilege and we make use of it that's what's happening here in ecclesiastes 9 1 through 12. solomon is telling us about some realities about death and he also tells us the solution and again the solution is found in the middle of the passage and it is seize the day grab hold of it enjoy life work hard do excellent work enjoy marriage It's important to allow death to preach to us, to really stand in front of our face, to realize that it's coming, so that we then live the rest of our days rightly. Death should be a preacher to us. We should let death teach us. In our day and age, we don't want to do that. We remove death as far as we can from us. No more open caskets at funerals, no more cemeteries in the middle of town. We just want everything away from us when it comes to death. Certainly at church, don't talk about death. It should be a place of joy and happiness. Well, we believe that if you take God at his word and talk about the things he calls you to talk about, including death, you can then look for where the hope is, and there is a hope. There is a relief from death. There is an overcoming of death. There is a light that penetrates the darkness. There is a hope. And in this passage, you see, again, death, verses 7 through 10, and then death again. And in those verses 7 through 10, there is hope. There's hope for those that will receive it from God's Word. So, our outline for this morning is two realities about death and how to live in response. Therefore three points, okay? I'm sorry to confuse you. I didn't think it was confusing in my mind, but then uh, I realized, you know what? That could be confusing. Two realities about death and how to live in response, and I'm telling you there are three points. The how to live in response is the third point, okay? So, sorry. All right. Three-point sermon. Two realities about death at the beginning and the end, and how to live in response to that will be there sandwiched in the middle, Let's look first at the fact that death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous, verses one to six. Death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. The key verse really in this paragraph is verse two, kind of summarizes what he's talking about in the paragraph. Let's look down at that. It's the same for all, since the same event, death, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, and the good, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. All of those opposites, all of those different people have the same thing in common. One day their life will end in death. Death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. Let's go back to verse 1 and kind of get a running start as we go through this paragraph. Solomon says this beginning, but all this I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now, let's stop there. He starts off with a verse of encouragement before he says that all will die. Again, the theme of the paragraph is going to be all will die, the good and the bad, good and the evil, those who sacrifice, those who don't sacrifice. But here at the beginning, we've got a little indication for the one who trusts, who fears, who reveres God, that there's a place that you can have your soul be at rest, and it's here. The fact that the righteous and the wise and their deeds, all that you do, are in the hand of God. That hand is a safekeeping hand. That hand is a comforting hand. That hand is a hand that preserves your life and your deeds on into the future. So, your life, if you are one who the Old Testament referred to as righteous, your life is in his hands. Now, we know as the scriptures move forward in time, we learn that righteousness ultimately is something given by God himself through Jesus Christ. So if you are righteous because of the fact that God has given you his righteousness in Jesus Christ, you could learn here from, from Ecclesiastes 9.1 that your life, your deeds, everything you've done, they're all preserved, protected by your God. That's a good place to start. So, at the very beginning of looking through Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12, I would just simply ask everyone listening this morning, is God a friend to whom your life and all that you've done is in His hands, and there will be salvation and reward for that in time? Is God a friend to you who holds you in His hands, or is He a foe who will crush and punish? Because all throughout this passage, there's talk about good and evil, the righteous and the wicked. And so, at the very beginning, we would just ask, is God a friend to you? Is your life in His hands? Are you reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ? Are you His child or are you still His enemy? All of us born enemies of God, all of us born hostile in mind, Colossians 1, but at a certain point, The salvation of God that He's given in His Son, the fact that He's given His Son to die and pay the penalty for our sins, and He's given His Son to give us His righteousness. And His Son rose from the dead showing that He has life in His hands. At some point when you hear that message and you respond to it in faith, you become a friend of God. So, are you a friend of God trusting in that reconciliation the Son has done for you so that you're reconciled with the Father, or are you still a foe? But notice for the one who trusts in Christ, for the one who believes in the salvation of God, your life, your deeds, your future is in the hand of God, preserved, kept, and that's a good place to start. But then as Solomon considers life, he, he turns from some bright statement, some statement of joy to a difficult statement of reality. You know, Solomon's not gonna let you be happy for very long. <laughs> Uh, he's going to tell you what it's really like, what, what vexes him, what concerns him. And it starts at the end of verse 1. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know both are before him. This is speaking of all men and women, all men and women under the sun, all men and women in this life, in this world. You don't know ahead of time whether you will be loved or whether you'll be hated. You don't know. We'll see. Whether it's love or hate on earth, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Then he goes forward even further and looks at death. Same event happens to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. So the ceremonially pure and the one who doesn't care about the ceremonies and the laws that God's given in the Old Testament. doesn't matter. You get two people, one clean, one ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Both of them will die. That's what Solomon's saying. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. In our language of new covenant people, to those who offer sacrifices of praise in the assembly of God's people and those who just don't go to church, aren't part of a church. The same fate happens for both. Both die. The faithful churchgoer, will die, and the one who faithfully did not attend church will die. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears, so the one who frivolously tells God what he's going to do, frivolously makes oaths to God, we saw that back in chapter 5, him and the one who says, I'm going to be careful with my mouth before God, both of them die. One's better than the other. But both of them die. Verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Solomon finds a problem with this, that the good woman and the bad woman both die. That's evil to Solomon. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live and after they go to the dead. This is the reality that Solomon finds so distasteful. There are good people that work at righteousness, try to be loving, try to care for others, and then there's a whole world of people who are full of folly and madness, craziness. What's crazy? That they don't live rightly before God. That's crazy. And Solomon realizes they both die. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. I take that to mean all the living on earth. If you're joined with other people who are alive on earth, there's hope for you. If you are among the living, there's hope. Why? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, those two animals, <clears throat> in many ways, in the scriptures, are opposites. A dog is to be looked down upon. I'm sorry. To some of you. I'm sorry. Not my words, God's words. A dog is an animal that's looked down upon, that wanders through streets and villages and eats anything. A lion is strong and powerful. A lion has some authority. There's strength there. The dog is to be despised. The lion is honored. And so Solomon's saying, it's better to be a dog that's alive than a lion that's dead. Who cares if you once were strong and powerful? You once had authority, but now you just aren't alive. So, if you have a beating heart, you're in a good spot today. That's good. That's a blessing. And there's hope. He said, the one who's joined with the living has hope. So, why is there hope if you're alive today? Look at the next verse, verse 5. For the living know that they will die. That reminds me of chapter 7, verse 2, right? Some of you might have thought of this. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay its heart. We're meant to be confronted with death at funerals, as we look at the Scriptures, So that we would say, what am I doing here? That's my future. What's my response then today? How do I find life? How do I live the way God intends me to live? There's a hope that you can have if you're alive. It's good to take your death to heart, to consider it. Again, verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." no more opportunities, no more opportunities to enjoy life, no more opportunities to get paid, to be rewarded for anything. They're gone. Verse 6, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. All the things they did in life, the things they loved, the things they hated, the things that they wanted and strove for, no more. They're not alive. Solomon's saying, this is what life is like under the sun. It's better to be alive than to be dead. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Better to be alive. Death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous, and it's good to realize when you're alive, hey, God's waking me up. I have life today. I've got a hope. I've got something to think about. I've got This isn't the end, I've got an opportunity. William Perkins, a writer from the 16th century uh, was reflecting on the fact that all people will either go to be with God or they will perish in their sin forever. He was reflecting on that and he said, it's kind of like a a village, like take, take an ancient Near East village And uh, there's some sort of raid on that village, so an army comes to ransack that village to kill and destroy, to take for themselves. And as they're coming through and you picture all the chaos in that village, the villagers, the people in the village will be doing something. They will be trying to preserve their life there's an enemy coming to destroy. They are trying to preserve their life. They will either succeed and preserve their life, or they will succumb to death. And Perkins said, if if you were living in a village like that, that would be your aim. So then he says, so with your life, let that be your aim. How do I preserve my life? Not just in the 80 or 90 years that you're living here, but how do I preserve my soul forever? What do I do to be right with God? That's the question to ask. Death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous, and it's good to think about that. It's good to be confronted with our own death. Last year I was reading through some of Martin Lloyd-Jones' works, and, and he, uh, he wrote a bit on the idea of coming death, and his own life and the days before his death is a fascinating study in and of itself, but, but he wrote a lot about, about preparing for death, and he said, you know, a lot of us want a quick death, you know, fall asleep and then boom, heaven, <laughs> or just something that where we don't have to have this prolonged suffering for 10, 15 years, He said a lot of society wants a a quick death, we don't want to suffer. But he was highlighting the benefits of having a slower death, and he looks back at previous times in history when someone knew they were going to die, and they knew that it might just be a matter of days or weeks or months, and those people tended to have appropriate conversations. There was literally kind of a, a deathbed um, order to where th- people would deal with things in the past. They would first right all wrongs with other people knowing that they were dying. They, they would make connection letters or whatever it may be or even visitors coming and, and there would be a reconciliation type of conversation that would happen with some people. There would be an honest assessment to where they were at with God. They would pray. They would ask for forgiveness. They would ask Him to be merciful. There would be a certain spiritual conversation that they would have with God, so they would reconcile with other people. They would, they would reconcile with God, if you will, and they, then they would give an exhortation to their loved ones. They might bring in their children one by one and give them an exhortation. As I'm about to go off the scene, and you are still here. I I am exhorting you to pursue this, to remember your God, or whatever it may be. Lloyd-Jones talked about the privilege of a slow death. It allows you to get your affairs in order, to, to have meaningful conversations with people, And I think about that when I think about this passage. Solomon's trying to put life in front of our eyes, and as soon as we say, or death in front of our eyes, and as soon as we say, no, Solomon, let's get it out of here. I mean, we're a people of happiness and joy. You know, everything's always good all the time. He says, no, I'm going to put this right in front of you. No, Solomon, seriously, I'm a New Testament Christian. There's hope beyond the grave. No, no, I'm going to put this in front of you because this is what you'll face. It's really a blessing to be reminded of your own death tends to wake us up. So, from this passage, from this first point, I would encourage you to take to heart the fact that you're going to die. Know it. Come to grips with it. And let it teach you how God would then have you live. Don't pretend it won't happen. Don't pretend that it might not happen this week. Know it. The living will take it to heart, and that's a good thing in Ecclesiastes. And then I can't get past verse 1 again. For those of you that are in Christ, know that for you, the righteous one, your life is in His hands. Again, that's a word of preserving. Your life is safe. Your deeds are safe. What you've done will be rewarded one day. The life you've lived is preserved. Know that, rest there. He starts again, starts this paragraph off with that fact. Your life is in His hands and that's meant to comfort those who revere the Lord. Just before we move on to point two, notice it says in verse one how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. The Bible teaches that the things that we do in His name, the things that we do in service to Him and to others, are actually kept by Him and then later rewarded by Him. And some of us have a really hard time with that. I'm saved by grace, even in my greatest prayers, my, my greatest good deeds. There's a taint of sin in them, God. He knows that. And He still rewards our good deeds done in His name after salvation. This is what God's like. As I was thinking through this passage, I thought, God is shockingly generous. I mean, just to interrupt our lives and to give us salvation in His Son, even just to rescue us from an eternity in hell and punishment and wrath, even just to to take us out of hell, let alone bring us with Him in heaven to be His children, and then to reward any good that we do from then on out. What a generous God we serve. This is taught all through the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15 is a place I would point you to. We've studied that in the past. God's a rewarder. Our life and our deeds are in His hand. But Solomon's troubled by the fact that death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. And so then in verses 7 to 10, he gives us point number two. So therefore, make the most of your life. Seize the day if you will. Here's Solomon's seize the day type of exhortation, and he talks about four different areas in life and how to live them. First, find joy in the gifts that God gives. Now, that's nothing new to us in Ecclesiastes, is it? We almost can't go through a unit of thought with Solomon without him telling us to enjoy life. He continues to say it over and over again, and he does it again here. Verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Another way of translating that is God has already taken pleasure in what you do. For the one who reveres God, the way that you enjoy his gifts gives him pleasure. Find joy in the gifts that God gives. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Eating, drinking, the fellowship that's done around a table, the, the way that eating and drinking points to God's sustaining of you, all of that is something to enjoy. Secondly, Solomon tells us, demonstrate joy in your appearance. So here's how you seize the day. First, you find joy in all that God gives. Thank Him for the things that He gives you. Enjoy meals. Enjoy Good food. He could have made everything taste like sour cream. And it would have sustained us, given us all that we needed, but he gave us flavors sweet, savory. I mean, that's the goodness of God. He did not have to do it that way. So thank him for that. Thank him for flavors, for sustenance, for people to share things with, people to enjoy things with. Find your joy in the gifts that God gives. And also, Verse 8, demonstrate joy in your appearance. Now, you know that often in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, wearing sackcloth and putting ashes on your head indicated that you were mourning. And so, verse 8 is really the opposite of that. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So, you're not in You're not walking through this life as a follower of God, head down, always mourning. Hey, what's wrong, brother? What's wrong, sister? Oh, my sin. I'm so horrible. I'm so wretched. I'm so ridiculous. And then you tell your friend, maybe you put your hand under their chin, lift their head up, and you say, Jesus died for you. You're a child of his. He's given his spirit to you. He's forgiven your sins, He gives you a hope. Smile, (laughs) be thankful for what you have. I'm so weak, yes, but He's a conqueror for you, and He's given you His Spirit to strengthen you, to empower you. I'm so sinful, and He's forgiven your sin. So this is Solomon saying to the one who fears God, lift up your head. Take off the burlap coat you're wearing and remove the ashes, wash yourself, put on a white garment, a garment of joy and hope and life, and put oil on your head. Perfume, health, soften the skin. Take joy in what you have. Yes, this life is dark and gloomy and there's death all around, but the follower of God has hope. So we should demonstrate that even in how we appear. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And then third, find joy in marriage. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Man was created to work and then there was a curse. And man and woman joined together in partnership to, to work together to feed their families, to be a blessing to society, and it's difficult to do that. So this life is a toil, and God's given us a gift to help mitigate that pain and difficulty. The gift is marriage and companionship. And notice Solomon doesn't say, man's there to work, a wife is the helper, together they work and they subdue the earth and they... they Are fruitful and multiply, and there's just some contractual agreement between husband and wife, and they've got a job to do. Well, partly true, but again, the goodness of God, he's also given us that relationship for joy and companionship. Peter calls it the the grace of life. Marriage is the grace of life. So, not only do we get a helper for one another, we get to work together But we also find joy in one another. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. All the days of your passing life. Vapor-like life. You and your spouse will be gone relatively soon in the scheme of things. So while you have him, while you have her, Enjoy one another. Find joy in one another. Take, take delight in one another. Be thankful for the grace of life that God has given you. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that He's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Go on walks, have conversations, laugh together, hope together, reminisce together, find joy in one another. God could have just said, ah, two is better than one, this life is cursed, I'm going to give everyone a companion, go ahead, do your best everyone. He, he did that but added love and affection and joy and intimacy to that. Again, what a good God. So Solomon's saying, hey, we're all going to die, this life is difficult and hard, enjoy the gifts he gives. Demonstrate that joy and how you even look. And find joy in marriage, the relationship that God has given you. And finally, work with excellence. O fearer of God, O reverer of God, lover of God, work hard with the mind that he's given you, the hands he's given you, the time he's given you. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Now Solomon didn't know... All that was coming in Jesus Christ and all that would be true of his life, death, and resurrection, he was like a typical Old Testament saint that knew we live and we die and then we go to the grave and there are no more opportunities to do anything. I believe Solomon did have a hope beyond the grave, but he didn't know all that we know about that. And so he looks at life under the sun, the way life looks on earth, and he just sees you've got an opportunity to do something And at some point, bam, it's done. No more opportunity to do anything. And that's what he's saying. Do your best because there's no work or thought. I've got an idea. None of that in in the grave. No knowledge. You, You know what I've learned? Doesn't matter. You're dead. You know what? I know the right. No, you're dead. No more opportunity. So while you're not dead, while you still have a mind and hands and feet and energy Do your best. In Colossians 3, Paul would tell us, do your work as if you're doing it for the Lord. Yeah, but I'm doing it for my boss. Oh, he's quite a, do it for the Lord. Oh, I hate school, algebra, biology. He's given you a mind. He's given you time. Do your best for him. Whatever your hand finds to do, Do your best. Do it with your might. Reminds me of Jesus telling his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day because night is coming when no one can work. You could ask the question, what's life? Life is an opportunity to work for God, to do something for him on this cursed planet that would bring him glory and other people good. Work with excellence. So make the most of your life. Don't just sit back and go, oh, we're all going to die. I'm not going to work. We're all going to die. No, do your best. Got a limited time. Work for the Lord. Make most of your life. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by those works. God's work, Christ's work is what saves us, his merit. But now that we are saved and reconciled to God the Father, it's as if we've got the ability to resemble Christ for the very first time. So what are you going to do with that? I'll oh, sit on the couch and just wait till I go to heaven. No, no, you've got this life and this mindset now that Jesus had. You see people and you have a love for them and you have a love for God. And he's given you hands and feet and time and a brain and a skill and a trade and a gift. So let's employ it. Let's do something. That's, that's living, says Solomon. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Pastor John read it earlier. Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of the resurrection of the dead, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Again, another passage that talks about God rewarding us for the good that we do. Now, because I don't want to mislead someone here, someone here might not have any care in the world to honor and give glory to God. And you might sit here and go, okay, yeah, we're all going to die. So he says, hey, enjoy the good gifts God has given. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. A lot of times in the Bible when those words are given, eat, drink, and be merry, it's a criticism. Solomon says here to do it, and it's for the one who fears God, who trusts in God, finds salvation in God. But the rest of the world doesn't need help in that because that's how they live apart from God. Eat, drink, and be merry. Remember in Noah's day? How was that generation talked about? The wicked people on the earth at the time of Noah. They're, they're talked about as those who would, in the days of Noah, they were those eating and drinking. Let's get all that we can out of this life. In 1 Corinthians, earlier in the chapter, chapter 15, it said, there's a thought out there, A worldly thought that says, let's eat eat and drink because tomorrow we die. So how are Solomon's words different? Solomon's words are written to the one who fears God, who trusts in the salvation of God, whose heart isn't trying to find gain and satisfaction just in the eating and the drinking, but whose heart reveres God and then says, now with the things you've given me, I'm going to enjoy them, but ultimately my life is aimed at enjoying you. That's the context of Solomon's exhortation to enjoy life. And again, can't get past the goodness of God here. God has given us the ability to have relationships that bring joy and love. He's given us the ability to not be downcast, but to reflect outwardly the hope that we have inside. He's given us gifts. He's given us filet mignon. I mean he's given us gifts to enjoy. He's a good God. You know when when Jesus Christ was born, came to earth, remember what the angels said? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God expects that the those who trust in Jesus Christ would be given a joy about them. Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. Do you remember one of the accusations against Jesus? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at Him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. He was accused of enjoying himself too much in the company of others. That was an accusation levied against our Lord. Wasn't he a man of sorrows? Yes, he was. And the Bible will teach you that in a life of suffering and difficulty and sorrow, there is joy to be had. Read the book of Philippians. There is still a joy to be found. Our Lord suffered in this world and still had a joy about Him. So, let's take our cues from Him. This is a dark world. It's a difficult world, but you can find joy. You can find ways to enjoy what God's given. I love what David Gibson said about our Lord. He said, you read the Gospels and you realize that Jesus ate and drank His way through the Gospels meeting with people, sharing meals with people, sharing that amazing meal in the upper room, which he ended abruptly and prematurely, said, I'm not going to finish this meal until one day I eat it with you in the future. And that will be something that we're all included in. Jesus was always eating with and dining with and enjoying fellowship with others Another writer, Jeffrey Myers, writes about the book of Ecclesiastes and all the focus on eating and drinking, and he says, it's as if the book of Ecclesiastes is a table in the mist, the mist of this life, but there's a table there and the ability to enjoy from the hand of God. That's a a good way of talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. So friend, enjoy the provision God gives. Look at what he's given. Look at the food he's given. Look at the home he's given. Look at the provisions that he's given you. And instead of complaining about them, saying they're not enough, saying that you wished you had different ones, enjoy God's good gifts to you. Also, don't be a dour Christian. I'm not saying act as if everything's always good. I'm not saying that. I'm saying realize that even in the suffering, there is a hope for the one who trusts in God. There is provision in the suffering. Also, enjoy your marriage. Again, you don't need to complain to others or even in your mind about the spouse that God's given you. They are better than you deserve. Maybe I'll say that again and underline it. (laughs) We've been given the gift of one another. God's good to give us companionship, love, marriage, Thank the Lord for it. Steward your marriages. Enjoy your husband, your wife. And finally, be excellent in your work. Students, moms, dads, retirees, whatever you put your hand to, do it with your might. Do your best. Because there's a day coming when you won't be able to have the impact that you can have now. Finally, we learn one more reality about death the last part of the sandwich. Verses 11 to 12, death comes according to God's timing. And obviously that means, and not our timing. Death comes according to God's timing, not our time. Death is the great interruption. It's it's interesting to observe families that lose a loved one try to plan a funeral and they think, Well, what day works? I mean, cousin Jenny lives in Alabama. Uncle Frank lives in Tucson. I've got this trip planned, I've got that. When does it all work? And I think the message to receive is death just interrupts. It just interrupts our plan. Sorry, cousin Jenny, sorry, Uncle Frank, sorry, work trip. Death just interrupts. It's not convenient. Death always interrupts. You think you're going to retire, come to Prescott, live for the next 20, 25 years, and in a year and a half you get diagnosed with cancer. That wasn't the plan. You think you're going to have all these ways that life is going to work out, and sometimes death just interrupts. It's on God's timetable, not ours. Verse 11 Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance, or maybe better translated, unforeseen happenings, time and unforeseen happenings happen to them all. Now here's what normally happens, you've got a swift person, a fast person, normally they win races, except when they pull up and have an injured hamstring. You know, before the race, they were the fastest one in the world, but they pulled a hamstring. Unforeseen happenings happen to everyone. Normally, the fastest wins, but sometimes they don't. Nor the battle to the strong. Usually, the strongest military wins, except sometimes when they don't. Bread to the wise. If you're wise, you order all your affairs, money here, money there, here's the investments, I will have enough always, except sometimes when you don't. Nor riches to the intelligent. If I just get straight A's, go to the right school, right graduate degree, be placed in the right firm, right practice, own my own business, I do all that, I'll be wealthy, except sometimes when you're not, nor favor to those with knowledge. If I just know how to operate in every situation, if I know how to talk to people, what to do, people will love me, except when they don't. Solomon's trying to show us you can't bank on anything, even the good in this life. Intelligence is good, being fast is good, being strong, being wise, knowledge, those are all blessings. Those are all good. But if you're looking for capital G gain from them, you will not find it. If you look at them as gifts to steward and to enjoy, that's a good start. But just realize that it doesn't mean it's going to keep you secure. Just realize that every good character quality you have, every good ability you have doesn't mean that it's going to solve your problems. That's what Solomon's saying. Unforeseen happenings happen to everyone. Verse 12, for man does not know his time. You don't know when these things are going to come. And it's not just unforeseen happenings that interrupt your plan. Sometimes it's the big unforeseen thing that interrupts your plan, which is death. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net. I love that. What a good way of describing fishing. (laughs) You put your evil net in that water and poor Nemo swims through, and <laughs> evil net, <clears throat> but picture the fish. I'm going to swim over here. I think I see some, something for some sustenance, and I'm almost there. Just kind of turn this rock, turn around this coral, right? net grabs you. That's death. I'm just going to go to high school, and then go to this university, and then death. Dating this girl, going to be engaged, and then before you can even propose, sudden death. You've, heard, you've all heard these stories. I'm going to move here, relocate the business, and live this way for 30 years, but it doesn't work like that. Life isn't in our hands, it's in His hands. Death comes according to God's timing and not ours. Reminds me of what James warns us about. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's as if James is saying that going, no. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You are a mist. Sound familiar? Sounds like Ecclesiastes. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Or Luke 12, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. (sighs) Look at the full barns. I have everything I need for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Here's another place where it's not looked at as a commendation. But God said to him, fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The day of our death isn't in our hands. God knows exactly what he's doing. Death does interrupt. Our plans are not the ones to bank on. I don't know if you've ever planned a big event, maybe a big dinner or some big meeting, or you've put hours upon hours and weeks upon weeks into preparing for this, and then the night before, something interrupts the plans. The family you're hosting gets sick. The, you were going to go on this trip and both of your cars break down, whatever it may be. Those are just little examples of what will happen to all of us one day. I didn't plan for death to come now. I didn't plan for it to be here yet, but it does. We will always die when there's more to be done. Another conversation to have had, another regret to remedy, that will always come before we can fix everything ahead of time. And we won't find true rest until we know that our life is in his hands. Here's a good way to find rest. God, I know that your son is my savior. I know that when I die, whether it's in five hours or 30 years, I know that my life is in your hands and you will welcome me home as a son. I know that there will be things I should have done before my death that I didn't do. I know there will be regrets that I could not remedy, there will be relationships that I could not make an effort or did not make an effort to heal, and I need Your mercy, and I rest in the fact that You're a merciful God. That's where I rest. And that's where I would encourage you to find your rest, not in trying to fix everything, plan everything by your knowledge, by your speed, by your strength, by your wisdom, by your intelligence. But allow yourself to rest in the hand of God, knowing that he has been merciful to you and has promised to hold you in his hand. That's where you find rest. Place your life in the hands of God. So we see two realities about death, and in the middle, how Solomon therefore then tells us to live, seize the day, live like this. I'm reminded here of something that we've read a number of times throughout the life of our church. Question one to the Heidelberg Catechism, so profound. I think it fits this passage. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has freely paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He has freed me from the tyranny of the devil. In fact, not even one hair of my head can fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father in heaven. All things must work together for my salvation. Friend, death is coming and the way to be relieved from it is to be found in Jesus Christ who is given to us by an eternally good Father. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reality of this book, we're thankful for the honesty of this book, and we are thankful for the hope that's found in this book to revere You, to love You, to be with You, to be yours is our hope. And so, Father, for those here that really do not care about you, do not love you, pray that the realities spoken of in this passage would grab their attention so that they would see that you are not just holy, but you are also merciful. And Father, for those of us who see the pain of death all around us and the pain of life and the difficulties of life. I pray that you would point us to the fact that our days are in your hands and that's the best place for them to be, safe and kept, ordered, designed by you, our loving Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.